Thanks to ZipRecruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. Staffing tech companies is tricky. From high turnover to rapidly changing skill sets, you really got to stay on your toes. ZipRecruiter knows this because they are a tech company too. So it's no surprise they've built a product that uses powerful machine learning algorithms that make finding qualified candidates simple, efficient, and intuitive. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. If that is relevant to you, if it's not, just ignore it. It's fine. Um, One thing you should not ignore, I was out for a little bit, and my colleague Kurt Wagner did an awesome job stepping in for me. He talked to Ryan Hoover for Product Hunt and Jason Citroen from Discord. Both of those are very interesting companies. Those are interesting episodes. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to them right now. Okay, we'll stop. We'll wait. All right, I'm okay. We're back here with Brian Morrissey, very patiently waiting for me to stop talking so he can say something. Hey, Brian. Hi, Peter. Brian Morrissey is editor-in-chief of Digiday. Is there a grander title? Uh, president and editor-in-chief. President and editor-in-chief. I usually just go with editor-in-chief. Do we call it Digiday Media or something It's Digiday like Media, technically. All right, we've got all that out of the way. I think the crossover between listeners to this podcast and consumers of Digiday and listeners of the Digiday podcast, probably 100%. Does that make us rivals? No, we're co-something-something. Something. Exactly. It's, it's like a collaboration. Yeah, it'd be weird if you were listening to this podcast and not consuming Digiday in some part because you guys do a kick-ass job covering the ins and outs and minutia and big picture of digital media, right? Yes, that's Stuff our mission. we talk about here, plus occasionally we have a movie director in, which you don't do. You're a little more I don't do it. Movie. I keep in my lane. You're narrowly focused. But thanks. I, I am a big admirer of you and your work. Uh, I'm also an admirer of the fact that when I emailed you earlier this summer and said, hey, you want to come on? He said, I'd love to, but I'm in Serbia, <laughs> which is the only time. As I want to do. No one has ever used that excuse to get out of a podcast before. What, uh, were, you doing, what were you doing in Serbia? My wife is Serbian, so I go to Serbia um, every now and again. Because she visits there with you. She doesn't live there. She does not live there, no, but her parents live there. I mean, you know, however you make your relationship work <laughs> yeah, is fine exactly. with me. You're in New York. I think you're in Dumbo, right, from your tweets? I you're, am in You're Dumbo, someone I yeah. feel like I know really well, even though I've only talked to you a handful of times. And it's yeah. almost entirely through social media, almost entirely through your Twitter feed. That's true. Um, yeah, I'm in Dumbo. I run into a lot of people from the media industry there. Brooklyn, Dumbo, that's yeah. what happens. Uh, you live in Dumbo. You are a serious runner. What else should I do I think I know about you based on your tweets? Um that's mostly it. Do you do the crazy ultra marathon? I have. I haven't in a couple of years. That's like when you run like 100 miles? Yeah, I got up to almost 60. Jesus. Um, what but, happens when you get to 60 miles? Uh, well, for me, I stop. Um, but do you but, reach like in a, like a like a euphoric state at some point in the in the ultra marathoning? <laughs> I don't know if you I, reach... My understanding of marathoning is when you're done running 26.2 miles, you're very yeah. tired. That's true. And they wrap you in the silver blanket, and you go, whew, that was a lot, even right. the guys who are really good at it. But if you pace yourself, you can go longer than 26. Um, I think that's a great segue into media. Do you do this to prove <laughs> a point? Like, I remember uh, seeing an interview with Dick Costolo. I think, you know what it is? It's his 50th birthday. Kara yeah. Swisher is interviewing him and saying, why are you so intent on, on this fitness regimen you're doing? He, he didn't. I'm sure there's a real answer involving psychology and Freud. But he said, well, I, I work with a lot of younger people, and I want to sort of keep up with them. The average Twitter employee age is, is 26. Is this the, the impulse behind your Yeah, your I have a lot of, like, a lot, of, lot of younger people who, uh, who, work with, who I work with. Um, no, I think I, I always – I got into running, um, you know, basically just that as, as a hobby. And then, you know, you keep running, and, and you think, well, maybe I can try this. And then at some point – you know, you just want to go, you want to go farther. And so you do, and it's, it's possible to do. It's just, it takes a lot of, uh, just preparation. And then, uh, as long as you do the numbers, it works out. You strike me as full on crazy. Is there a professional benefit to this? Do you, do you, is there a running group of dudes? There's a lot of, is there, is there there the equivalent of the, the golf course? Uh, I, I don't like to run with other people, so um, I try not to do the you can't sort of do source meetings. Networking. I think, I think that's I think I think the venture capitalists all like to cycle. They they're into like the expensive gear. You can get multiple bikes. Here really you buy one pair of shoes and you're dead. Yeah, right. you get you get get some shoes. There's like and some that's special all you need. Vaseline for your Vaseline, parts, right? Yeah, Aquaphor. Um yeah, that's that's 
basically that and a headband. That's all right, all this has been need. running with, with Ryan Morrison. It's the end of the <laughs> podcast. Thank you, Brian. No problem. Uh, your day-to-day job when not running is, I, I think you use editorial guy, but also business guy. Am I summing up? I mean, I would not business just because, you know, obviously we can't go out and sell ads or anything like that. Why not? Um, uh, because there's still a division between, um, you know, content and uh, and sales. So you think of you primarily as the guy who puts the stuff on the page or whatever the metaphor is? For no, the page. I think. I think we all know that everyone who is involved in editorial at, you know, when you get towards like being editor-in-chief or something like this, you know, half your job ends up being business-related. I mean, this idea that there's this strict division between what like, you know, the top editor at any media organization does and the business side is just, that's, maybe that existed in the past. It doesn't exist now. I don't think it ever existed, but you'll see even like Dean McKay, like now I pay attention to the business side. That's been a big shift for me. That that always seems silly because, I mean, these are building a sustainable media business, no matter the size, um, is really difficult. It's always been difficult, but it's never been more difficult. And so you have to make products that are going to make money. Um, Otherwise, you're going to go out of business. I mean, this is still a business. So, so okay, so we'll go down this path for, for a minute or two. So, like, I'll go on a sales call. I won't, like, invo- I won't literally really? sell I, the I, ad. I don't. If someone, if, uh, uh, not, yeah. I mean, someone says, uh, we're talking to so-and-so. They're interested in participating in the conference you're doing. They want to mm-hmm. meet you. And so I'll say, sure, I'll, I'll go talk to them. And I have questions for them. And I won't extol the virtues of being part of the conference, but I'll be there with an ad salesperson. I've, I'm comfortable with that. I figure this is a meeting I would take on, under my own auspices. I'm mm-hmm. okay with that. I read ads for Mac Weldon, who make fine socks, 20% yeah. off the promo code Recode. You're wearing them. Um, I'm wearing them right now. I'm comfortable that I sort of have drawn my own lines in the sand, and I also won't read ads for other products, and I won't read ads for any media-related product, and it's sort of my internal sort of ruler, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you set that? So your your title is president as well as editor-in-chief. So what, what yeah. part of the business side do you participate in? Mostly in the product. I mean, really in making products that are going to fulfill business goals. To me, that's like what my role is rather than in the day-to-day of, you know, the sales. I think in in coming up with packages that people are, are willing to spend money on and that deliver value to them and don't in any way sort of hopefully harm the user experience or in any way, you know, infringe on our credibility. So... I think that's basically what about what, is the, what about the middle ground where someone either comes to you or you come to them and say, "Hey, I'd like to be, uh, we we're so and so is interested in sponsoring a package about X." Mm-hmm. This is a fairly fairly standard trade publication sort of thing to do, either because a, a sponsor said we were interested in in, re, in having our name attached to a bunch of stories or videos or whatever about X. Can you make these things? Theoretically, they keep arm's length distance from it, or you actually say. We would like to create something. Can our ad people go out and find a sponsor for it? We won't make it if that happens. That's a newer version of that. Do you do either of those? Um, the latter, yeah. for sure. I mean, I think that's like a normal— Built if sold. Yeah, built if sold. Um, and just making sponsorable products, to me, that's what it is. And on the events side, obviously, you know, with events, it's, it's a little bit different, but not that much different. So let's pull back. You went to Digiday seven and a half years years ago. ago. Yeah, almost got the math right. Prior to that, you were at Ad Week. Ad Week, yeah. As a reporter. Uh, Yeah, I was digital editor, but that was I didn't edit anyone. Um, So I I've covered the industry for you know a long time, I guess, and um, I was at Ad Week for. About six years, I think it was, and uh, I was looking for something new to do. Have you done anything that wasn't covering the business of digital media? I was a researcher for a speech writing firm in Washington, D.C. for two unhappy years directly out of That's on your school. LinkedIn. It says White House something, but it didn't, yeah, yeah, no, it didn't no, mean you no. worked at the White House. No, it didn't. But weirdly enough, one time because of that, Omarosa added me on LinkedIn. <laughs> she thought I, I think, worked at the White House. <laughs> Have you tried? Have you tried messaging? <laughs> no, I went back to find it, and I think she like I don't know what you unfriend someone on LinkedIn. I just got I just got a Disconnect. friend request from the woman who sings the song about Havana. Okay, it's <laughs> a little random. I don't. What's well, whatever the that song? I think her name is Maria something, and I assumed it was a BS 
thing, but I looked, and it actually is her account. I don't know why. <laughs> That's LinkedIn. But I no, no, that was Facebook. Oh, Facebook. Sorry. So I'm well, a, that can be Facebook. I'm a these things influencer. Too. Uh, so you went from Adweek to Digiday. As I recall, Digiday was. I'm mean, going to be polite, a second or third tier industry trade. Mm-hmm. Well, it was mostly an events company, right? I mean, so Nick Freeze, our founder, um, started Digiday about 10 years ago. No funding, just his own savings. And I think he took an early withdrawal on a 401k, um, not to be recommended. Um, but he started it with events because, you know, as you know, to build media from from scratch is really hard because you need an audience before you can get advertising um, events is, is are, are difficult but it's it's easier on the business side you can you know he filled a room with about 50 publishers I think it was who were trying to figure out how to make money see I find a lot of people look at events and go that looks great then they take a look at it and go oh, this is way harder than digital publishing digital publishing I put something on the web yeah. or wherever the canvas is. And I've made it once, and then I can resell it as many times as I want and sell ads against it, and my costs are super fixed, and my, you know, I can't get into too much trouble, whereas at the very basics, right, renting a room yeah, yeah, no, and it, getting it involves, an AV guy in, right, you're already in the hole a bunch, and maybe no one shows up. It's a disaster. I think a lot of media companies are finding that now as they've sort of pivoted to events since advertising has become less attractive as the main part of your revenue model. Um, and actually, I joined, um, and Nick and I talked about, about you know, he always wanted to build it into a media brand, but, uh, you know, events were the basis of it. And I thought it was really attractive, actually, to use the events as the basis of a media company rather than usually it's the opposite way right. around. Um, and actually, that was because of, of All Things D. Um, because oh no, what do we what do we do? Well, no, because I think what what you guys were doing, you know, within uh, within News Corp at the time was really interesting in that the events were a platform that was being used um, to power the brand, yeah. you know, and so it not only is a really good economic model, but I think it provides a lot of advantages when it comes to building a kind of a, a community if you will. Um, so he was running, and as again, my recollection, the Digiday events, they were really focused. Um, yeah, super focused. So you weren't getting the CEO of a company, sometimes you would, but very often yeah. it was the CRO. Yeah, no, it was always very, yeah, because like the media industry, um, media industry is very strange in a lot of different ways, but one of the, the ways is that sometimes the people at the top are not as powerful as the people like three rungs down because the people three rungs down are making spending decisions. Um, and Nick was always really smart about getting, you know, because his background is from the business side, is getting really close to the transaction level. Um, and so the transaction level when it comes to like agencies and stuff like this is is like, you know, the media supervisor and stuff like this. It's not the... This is the, the famous slash infamous 26-year-old media buyer. Well, it's one... Not, it's, but it's, above it's that a, person's a, boss. Yeah, yeah, that person's boss. Um, and not necessarily the, the sort of chief digital officer or some figurehead who goes, you know, around from place to place. Um, so... So it was the idea of fairly small... Yeah. rooms, very tightly focused yeah. audience, and then you charge not a ton of money to attend these things either. It was a different model than it was a different model, the All Things D model, or at the time there were sort of versions that's like, I don't know, Mashable would sell you a $1,000 ticket to hear from Thinkfluencers, and I think most people who went there probably were unemployed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it could be. There's a lot of that going on with events. It's funny, because we, we started doing these events, I think what you were talking about was, we were doing them in New York, and, and a couple like in L.A., um, and basically what we found was they were great for generating a fair amount of revenue, but your costs got out of control because things are so expensive in New York and in L.A. Hotels and event spaces are really expensive. I remember one time we did an event and like the, the like box lunches, we were, we were paying $40 per box lunch. Cool. And I was, I was saying, hey, Nick, forget about this. Let's go into sandwiches. I mean, let's, <laughs> let's skip the media part. Um, but then we started doing a different model, which is more akin to, to All Things Day or Recode with, with more summits, and we call them summits. But um, just things that w- that are, it's hard to get people in, you know, focused on anything nowadays. Like, and so our model has always been to get people away so we can control the, the, the audience and stuff like this, have them in nice places. Yeah, um, that part we 
try to do most often. Because often people say, well, why don't you have it somewhere more convenient? And we say, no, that's the whole problem. Yeah, they screw they 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 leave for a meeting because there's always someone. Um, and you, you have that abandoned name tag problem. If you go to events in like uh, in cities, like you see it, there's just all these like empty name tags of people who found something better to do. Very sad. Um, it is sad. It's a sad thing. There is a part of the business market that says, well, if they pay your 1000 or $2,000 and they leave, mm-hmm. who cares? Uh, that's true. Um, that's it really terrible, depends. on a terrible idea, but that's but, but you it's hear a little that, bit transactional. That, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it sounds kind of cheesy, but like I really do think um, events as a basis um, to build media is, is important because of the community aspect. Um, you know, some some people look at businesses that have um, events as an important part of their model, and they say, "Oh, it's not scalable." It's like, well, yeah, it's not an iPhone, but. You can build very nice businesses in which events are um, a, a big part of it. And I think one of the ancillary benefits is this community. I mean, not look, we're coming out of this period where there have been a lot of flimsy, overly engineered media brands that I call them. And by overly engineered, I mean either financially engineered using venture capital. I'm going to take, you know, $80 million in venture capital and build a $60 million in revenue business that loses money. That, that's one way to do things. Uh, or they're, they're overly engineered and using a lot of like growth hacking tactics on Facebook in order to get audiences. They're overly engineered with their, um, with their ad models. But with an events model, um, you have more like direct connections to your audience. And you I know think, who that person is. They know who you are. They've shown up. They've made a commitment of both their money and their time. Yeah, you've actually like met them. I mean, is it... Now, some again, people say, "Well, that's not scalable." Well, that depends on what your on what your area is, you know. So, I mean, Digiday, as you said, like we're very focused on how the media and marketing industries are being changed by technology. It's basic. So, this is I apologize to anyone who's bored, but this is my education about how another version of the events business. But I remember you guys did a ton of events. Yeah. So many that I literally couldn't understand how you were mounting them. It seemed like you were literally doing multiple events a week. You stopped that pace, right? Yes, we have. Okay. Although I think we're going to do something like 50, 50 events, I think. In, so you're still doing one year. a week? Um, I, at, some, at some level, probably. And even if you're just like have, we have one on ballroom Thursday. C in the whatever Hilton, that still takes people to to market it and put it on and show it up and break it down. It's just a lot yeah, of but labor. The, well, that's true. But the advantage is if you have an infrastructure, yeah. at some point, if you have an infrastructure built to, to do 30 events, you have an infrastructure built to do 50 events. Um, so you already have the infrastructure in place. And um, I always used to joke, and I still joke, that our competitive advantage when it comes to events when all everyone sort of rushes into events is that we've committed every atrocity possible when it comes to an event. You've stepped on all landmines. Yes. So the problem with a lot of people who move into events is if they do like two a year is like they don't have enough time to fix screw-ups, you know? So I think that's a big advantage, um, you know, having done so many of them. And now it's, it's you know, we have a, we have a, a team that does, that handles... Yeah pretty much all of it. Shout out to the teams. Yeah. I want to ask you about the content part of what you actually do. I thought that Digiday was publishing before you got there, but there really wasn't yeah. a Digi- There was something. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying the, the model was mostly around around right. the events. So you, you show up and say, I would like to spin this up into a full-fledged news operation. We're going to do feature stories. We're going to break news. We are going to be a credible source of industry information that is both useful to insiders and also people who don't pay attention to this stuff day to day, which is where you're at now. That's seven years later. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, so how long – obviously it took you seven years to get there, but how long did it take you to sort of break to the point where you're doing what you want to be doing? Um, I would say it took a, a, a year or so. That's I all? Mean, I mean, I think so. I don't, it's, it's hard to go back. I mean, I mean, I think the basic idea in, in getting started, because I, I know there's a lot of people, oh, media is an overcovered area, let's face yes. it. I don't know if you've noticed this. Yes. Um, the, the part that I thought was an opportunity, and, and, and Nick and I did, and then, and then Mike Shields when he joined us, um, was that a lot of trade publications existed in this model in which they were one, boring, and two, they were cheerleaders. You know, yeah. And that's why you get 
the 40 under 40 lists because they're trying to sell congratulatory ads, you know, for, I mean, this is a well-known trade model. You, you, you do some list and then you go to that person's company or their congratulations and, and the congrats ad and, um, is in, is in the magazine. Congratulations. You can pay us money. Yeah. And like, I saw that and I was like, that has very little economic value. And I think that model existed because the industries were fairly static. And so I think, you know, what's going on with media and how much it has changed um, is the role of a quote-unquote trade publication is totally different. I don't think, you know, anyone makes a separation of the, the type of content. Like, oh, I, I read this content for my work purpose, but this, you know, because I'm really interested in, in this hobby or running or something like this. I think it's all kind of similar. Um, and I think the role kind of changes in a very fluid environment to be more... I mean, we call it like honest about what's going on and particularly the challenges that have been going on with media. I think now there's a lot more focus on it. I know like seven years ago, people didn't um, like to talk about all the problems that existed. Um, They were saying, oh, well, you're not being supportive and stuff like this. And and you get, so you got that feedback right away because you, you, again, right away you, you publish, uh, you have a great series, uh, The Confessions. You talk anonymously to a publisher, an ad buyer, whoever, and Mm -hmm. they give you the straight shit. Um, That seemed to be sort of a trademark or something you guys were doing right away. You were were getting pushback against that? Of course. Yeah. You know, because people people didn't want... um, There was a lot of people who have interests in in problems being glossed over in the media industry. And and I think it's in many industries. Um... And there's an opportunity, I think, to just be a little bit more honest about some of the challenges because, you know, we have it in our mission that we want to create change um, in media and marketing and to make it a much more healthy and sustainable system because a lot of the things that, you know, we were all told when, when the internet and publishing combined have really not turned out. Like? We, were supposed to get, we were supposed to get all this great content. It was going to be free. It was going to be supported by advertising. There was going to be a long tail that, you know, it enabled every single, you know, thousands of voices to bloom. There was advertising was going to be relevant, and it was going to be, you know, we we would not see dog food ads when we own, when we own a cat. I'm not a cheerleader in any way. <laughs> I think much more of that has actually happened than we thought. I think that we're in it so much that we're disappointed with it, and then also lots of uh, the really obvious negative. Uh, I don't know if side effects is the right word. Results of that have shown up, um, and there's lots of publications that have not succeeded. Right, that the, the, right. the long-haired Persian cat magazine dot com does not exist, or maybe it's just a blogspot that's barely maintained. But I, I mean, I think if you go go back and compare this to the landscape in 1992, right, mm-hmm. we're probably way better off. I mean, we're with the glaring exception of local news, which is a, just a total failure, and we're all going to die because. Because no one well, that's is watching a pretty glaring failure, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. That part sucks. Yeah. The part we're all going to die. But yeah, I stipulate that things have not panned out in some ways. Um, but you are producing a publication that I read for free. I don't subscribe. We have to change that. Yeah. There's a, there's a Digiday Plus yeah. version. I mean, like anyone— gives me what? Uh, we, we have exclusive research. Uh-huh. Um, we have exclusive content. Each day there is at least one story that is exclusive to Digiday Plus subscribers. How many folks are reading you for free on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Uh, for Digiday, like a million. million. One, and uh, then how many, how many people are paying you? Uh, thousands. Yeah. So are the <laughs> thousands, uh, uh, do, do the million of free readers, are, are they generating revenue for you? Or is it almost yeah. entirely through the, the subscription business? Yeah, look, we make money a, a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, that's the thing I think with with media is, you know, we cover it, but we also live it. Um, you know, we don't have um, venture capital backers, so we fund ourselves through um, profits. And through we running to, a business. Yeah, a business. It's the old-fashioned way. Um, and we got to support 80 people doing that. Um, so it's it's non-trivial, I would say. 80 people, no VC, no outside funding? Nope. nope. And you, you're, you're now an owner or slash funder? Uh, or? <laughs> no. It's still Nick's I, business. It's Nick's business. Yeah. Uh, there must have been a desire to take on some money, especially like a few years ago when everyone was throwing money at, at, uh, at media companies. Um, no, not really. really. Uh, mostly just because, I mean, we have a small outside investor, um, so, you know, who, who owns a small percentage of the company that just, when we were 
you know, when we were building out the the publishing arm, we needed some money to hire some people. Um, so I think being independent has been beneficial because there was a lot of things that it helps to keep you focused on the stuff that really makes a difference to the business versus chasing the latest trends and pivoting to video or pivoting to anything that wasn't going to make sense for our audience and for our business. So that's been beneficial, I think. Um, it feels to me like, and again, I'm a not paying you, but I'm a pretty close reader. It seems like sometime maybe three years ago, two years ago, you guys really took a big leap in terms of the kind of stuff you're publishing, the cadence. It's getting better, smarter. You're breaking more stories. Did something happen there? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, look, you end up, I mean, you know, I mean, building these things is like really hard and like it, it, there's also a lag where like people notice things like almost like sure. a year or so after really I think they've happened in some ways. And I think that's how like brands get built in some ways because you know, people are like, wow, you guys all of a sudden are doing like amazing stuff. And I'm like, really? I'm like, I thought we were doing better. Like, a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you well, internally you can't, it's the flip side is you can't really actually see it when you're internally. Right. Right. You, yeah. you don't actually see what's happening. You think you see what's happening. Yeah. You see all the, but it's just a matter of like getting, you know, the best it's it, again. It's like cliches, but they're cliches because they're because um, they're true. Is you know you get you get a, a good group of people, and then they've been working together for a longer period of time, and everyone's on the same page, and so it helps. You're talking about focus. The last time I wrote about you it was I think a couple years ago when you guys were announcing. A, I think it was called Glossy. Yes. Was it a print magazine? No, no, no. no. Glossy it was, is... You, so you have a print magazine. Glossy was a... Was a yeah, this me. is a new brand. I mean, so that's why it's... Obviously, the story stuck in my head. Yeah. Um, basically, what we saw um, was, you know, we were doing this for media and marketing, going through all these changes, but there are other industries that have similar dynamics. And I think, for us, the best industries to focus on are are those that are culturally relevant in some ways. And... Uh, fashion and beauty was actually an industry that uh, was really attractive to us. How's that going? It's going well. Um, you know, we we started with fashion, and now we've added on like beauty and wellness. I know you're those are wellness. tough. Those are tough. It seems like those are difficult businesses for people to sort of get their head around. Turning uh, uh, turning in. Making a business out of covering the business of those things is harder than it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, our colleagues over at Racked have sort of gone back and forth about how to handle that. Um, I think business of fashion is doing pretty yeah. well, subscription only. Yeah, you go, it's working for you guys. Yeah, I mean it's definitely working. When um, you say it's, when you say the the there's a reason to do things that are culturally relevant. Because look at why why do people other than journalists loving uh, journalism, media is overcovered in some ways, and it's because it's. It's a sexy industry. Right. It, so there's has, the people who are in the business who care about it, people who might want to invest in that. And then there's a group of other people who don't yeah. read about it day to day but are might be interested right. in some article you wrote because it's yeah. on TV. I mean, look, our, our core is always going to be people who read us because uh, that's their job. So so even though writing about it on the business of uh, microchips or plastics, right, might be just, yeah. as, just as relevant. Petrochemicals is a gigantic Gigantic industry. business. It's never going to have an audience I'm more than a few thousand people. sure that it's going through wrenching change right now. Um, I, I just think that culturally relevant industries are, are in, end up being a better fit. Was there, was there an extension that you guys have tried that hasn't worked? We tried finance. Um, it might have been at the same time. Uh, and we did it through a partnership and uh, didn't work. And I think there's a whole bunch of different reasons why it didn't work, like internally. Um, uh, we, had a, we had a really good team uh, on it, and we built a really good team. I think, you know, the partnership aspect was difficult. I think when you're a small company, you start to realize that, you know, partnerships, you, you tend to do better when you when you control as much as, as you can. Um, but also, I think, you know, finance was too far outside of our core, probably in some ways. Um, whereas, like fashion and beauty, really overlap well, particularly with the marketing side of our coverage. I mean, it's it's mostly brand mm-hmm. and marketing. Um, so that to me was a good lesson for how we expand into new areas because we want to keep building different brands. Is um, there is there a component of the fact that you are self funded? 
that the money you make is the money you make, mm -hmm. um, that there's no outside cash coming in to float you. Does that – how does that figure into sort of the risk calculation you make when you say, we want to try a new thing. It's going to involve hiring X number of people, committing these resources. It could go to zero. Yeah. Well, that's the hard part. I mean, so being independent, I think one of the, the challenges ends up being that you don't make gigantic bets, like, because you can't get too far ahead of yourself on, on revenue. And so a lot of times that's good. We didn't spin up a giant Facebook Live team or anything like that. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges is you've got to make fairly measured bets. So, you know, we have to, um, you know, Glossy, I think now we have like five people on it. Um, so... Sometimes you have gigantic opportunities or you, ones that you see, but that you can't um, you can't put like a ton of resources against. Them. And you live with that. You say this is the downside of being yeah. a modestly profitable operation. Modestly, <laughs> no, I'm just a, a profitable operation where we're not yeah. swimming in cash and and we can't afford to hire twenty people on a on a guess. Yeah, it enforces discipline, but you know, obviously. The obvious um, pairing to that is sometimes you can't make as big of bets on things as you want. There's tons of industries we would like to expand into, but we, you know, we have to be pretty cautious about it. Same thing with geographies. You know, we um, we've been in in the UK and Europe now for uh, about four or five years. Um, we've got a team over in the UK, although they're visiting this this week. Um, and we're in Japan and a little bit of Australia, but like, there's tons of of different geographies we want to go to. We but. talk about that with events all the time, and and, and sort of the risk slash reward of doing something in China or Europe or Israel. Yeah, right. Tons of opportunity there, but a ton of distraction and a ton of resources. Right, there. and you have no idea about. I mean, that's why. Like, we have we have a Japanese site, and and we have great partners in Japan that take on most of that where we would have no idea. Um, so it's finding those partners. But then you don't have, like if you're a small company, you don't have like an entire team handling that. Yep. It's, you just sort of do it yourself. Like everyone does like, you know, a bunch of different jobs. Here's a job I did not, I was not involved in. I did not sell this ad to this fine sponsor here, but we're going to hear from them anyway. Right, Golda? Golda's nodding her head. We'll be right back. Hey, Recode Media listeners, this is Amanda Clute, Eater's Editor-in-Chief, and I want to tell you about a new show that we just launched on PBS with Chef Marcus Samuelson. Every Tuesday, Marcus explores the food and culture of a different immigrant community, like the Arab-American community and their cuisine in Dearborn, Michigan, the Vietnamese community in New Orleans, the Haitian community in Miami, and the list goes on and on. I really love this show because I'm learning about new cultures and traditions that I didn't know about in the United States, and I hope you do too. So check out the show every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. on eater.com slash no passport required or on PBS. Back here, Brian Morrissey, who is the king of Digiday. That's my new title for you. <laughs> okay. I don't uh, have nickel like the, that. <laughs> he can get his own podcast. Uh, we've been talking around Facebook a lot. Let's talk about Facebook and sort of how you view them. My sort of cynical sense of just how corporations and the world works is when you have a company that's been beat up for a year like Facebook has, it's going to inevitably sort of swing back. And in a couple of years ago, well, that was weird when we all sort of overreacted to the election stuff and fake news stuff and Mark Zuckerberg kind of being okay with the Holocaust denial. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe this, maybe there's been a tipping point. Where do you come down? I think it's hard to talk about Facebook as one entity particularly when it comes to media. And I mean, I fall into the trap all the time myself, and I try to, you know, make sure that, you know, we don't, but because there's so many different, Facebook is so big, and there's so many different constituencies, and I'm sure that there are some constituencies that are really into um, mending its relationships with publishers. But at the end of the day, um, you know, Facebook is probably rightly, all about Facebook's interests. And, you know, those interests um, sometimes align with publishers and oftentimes they don't. So let's, let's break it down. There's the Facebook publisher story, which people like myself, I uh -huh. think, have overcovered for years. Why do you think it's overcovered? Because I think there's a handful of publishers that care a lot about it and some of their readers are cognizant of it. It's an important story, but I think we probably over... Because we're writing about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, same reason the media broadly is overcovered, right? Um, there's that story. There's the Facebook and advertising story, 
which is a much bigger story. And then there's the story which I feel very bad about really just ignoring for almost the entirety of Facebook's existence is Facebook and the world, the the actual impact that Facebook has on people, not not industries. Um, so I want to mm-hmm. go. I guess we could make more categories, but let's start with with one. So the Facebook publisher story. There's a great story out today about something Campbell Brown who has. She's denying it. Right, you know what she's denying. So you can go back and look this up at the time. There's, she, there's some particularly ripe comments associated with Campbell Brown, who's supposedly the peacemaker on behalf yeah. of Facebook. The specifics of the language I haven't heard before, but the tone and no, just totally, directional is exactly what she's been saying for yeah, uh, which is a while. not. Which I is, guess to be is, fair, is, I don't is, think it's I don't think it's a bad message for for publishers. Right, publishers, and just to fill in the gaps in case you're not going to do your own googling, she has said in the past and supposedly said at this meeting, "You guys are kind of on your own, and publishers. Yeah. We're gonna we're stop gonna blaming help. us for all stop of your problems. Stop blaming us. We're gonna help you in varying ways, but we're not gonna solve your problems. No, and nor should they. I mean, the fact is, a lot of publishers made poor strategic decisions and with the encouragement of Facebook is sure, part of the problem. Yeah, that's fine, but like, you know, everyone runs a business yeah. and like it you can't rely on someone else to solve your problems. You have to solve your problems on your own. Um, you know, they many publishers were all too happy to take Facebook's traffic, to build their strategies around around Facebook's strategies and then they were shocked, shocked when they found out that Facebook did things in their interest that not that were not necessarily to in be publishers' fair, though, interest. right? Like Craigslist, which which had a huge role in decimating the newspaper business, right? Um, never got this kind of amnesty, in part because Craig Newmark never walked around saying, "I'd like to hear more about your concerns, and and maybe there's a way we can work with you." And I've got a new pilot program, or here's some funding if you all create whatever the equivalent of live video for Craigslist would be, right? He never did any of that. He just went ahead and, and sucked up all their money and kind of shrugged. And now he's giving a couple bucks back. Um, Facebook did this thing where they periodically went out at conferences or wherever and said, we'd like to hear more about yeah, your concerns. No, without a doubt. And that's the thing is Facebook is so big that they have a lot of people who would go out. I remember a publisher saying they hire nice people to say nice things to us, and then the next day they take decisions that are completely contrary to our business interests. And that's just because Facebook is gigantic. It's a whole bunch of different um, factions. So, Grin-fucking, I think, is the term we can use in public. Um, you know, maybe now, I mean, I think, you know, look, Campbell Brown's job, as far as I understand it, is is to make nice with publishers, but she's doing it with sort of tough talk. That's why it sounded yeah. sort of credible as far as, um, I don't know whether she said it to those Australian publishers or not. So you, but you, so you think that ship has sailed, for, to pick a, a sloppy metaphor, right? That's, that's, Facebook is now going in its own direction. No one's under any illusions about that on the, on the publishing side. It is what it is. I don't think many people are going to build publishing strategies and their models around right. Facebook anymore. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that publishers should build their own strategies and as much as possible control what you can control. I mean, Facebook will do what's in Facebook's interests. And so the idea of being dependent on Facebook or being dependent on any other platform is crazy at what this a, point. What about on the ad side? There's no, and it's only a couple quarters in. The ad guys don't move that quickly, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that any of the, the negative news around Facebook for the last year has affected advertisers' interest and willingness to use that platform. Well, I mean, advertisers are really just looking at results, and until Facebook becomes less effective to whatever results those advertisers are um, after, I don't think that'll change. So when we see uh, like the last quarter, you saw f- f- growth actually slowing in North America, which, which is obviously, curious. But obviously it's going to, right? Yeah. Like, there's only so many people in North America. Pretty much all of them have been exposed to Facebook at some point. That's true. But like, f- Google and Facebook can both, to some degree, engineer results, right? I mean, Google famously never gave guidance, but they always... They always change things in order to hit numbers at a certain because they would just put more ads on a uh, on right. a search results page. But this is a, this is a user number. But but the point is yes, user if, number. If, of if course. you're trying to gauge the health of Facebook's business, I've read lots of hot takes over the last couple of weeks saying, well, this is the you know uh, Russia or whatever has finally caught this up is to gonna them. Be, this is going to be like uh, predicting the year of mobile. Eventually, eventually, people are going to be right. 
Yeah, but I don't. I don't even think that's true. I mean, I think if I guess if in mass people really stopped using Facebook, um, and it's easy to find a trend. I think Kara Swisher right now is working on a trend story where she's going to quit Facebook. Um, eventually, Robert Scoble will. I'm sure will as, as well. Uh, I don't use Facebook. I, I use it where my kids' pictures go. Um, and now they show me pictures of my kids that I posted eight years ago. It's this amazing feedback loop. Um, but there's no reason to think that its power as an advertising platform is, is has, has or will diminish. I mean, not right now. It doesn't show up in the results. And mostly because it's the best alternative out there. I mean, it's like Google and Facebook are getting all of this ad money um, because they're doing a better job for their advertisers. And then Facebook as a global entity, as a thing that has more power than some governments but isn't really regulated in any sort of meaningful way, do you think that continues on or do you think they actually are going to be reined in? I know there's GDPR in Europe, but it doesn't seem like that really fundamentally changes the way they do business. No, I don't think GDPR is going to be the thing that that changes um, the power equation. But I do think that governments, particularly in Europe, have a lot of interest in rebalancing the power when it comes to Google and Facebook. And they're not scared. Do they have the ability to actually do that? Um, I know they can effectively tax them a lot, but they make a lot. I mean, what what was the – it's a $5 billion Google tax? Yeah, that's like nothing. It's almost literally nothing. But that's one of like many – I I wouldn't discount the severity of, um, or at least the intensity of uh, Europe's distrust of Google and Facebook. Um, Because, look, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley who will say, well, this is because Europe lost. They lost, just, there's been no sort of giant digital technology companies that have come out of Europe. You know, they've all come out of Silicon Valley. And so Europe is going to do what Europe always does, which is regulate and tax. Um, so that's that's one. Um, but there's also the belief that um, the power of the platforms, particularly in Europe, is such that the governments will step in. I mean, when it comes to privacy— well, and, 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 and can step in in a way that, that effect, meaningfully affects the way they do business and or their, their business trajectory in the way that the U.S. Department of Justice did with Microsoft yeah. 15 years ago. I mean, it, it's it's very similar to that. You think you think um, you re- you, we can and we'll see a replay of that? I mean, I don't know if we will actually see it because it, I think it's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, you can't go um, to Europe much and and not hear people wanting to have these gigantic platforms that are from the United States be severely regulated, and the Germans will will act in that, in that way. Um, they're serious about this. I mean, GDPR was, I think, an interesting I, I jokingly wonky, promised a GDPR conversation, so well, here we are. Well, it, it was an interesting wonky Again, you know, I, can't, thing. I can't imagine that most people who yeah. listen to this podcast uh, don't know what it is, but for those handful that don't, it is... The Global Data Protection Regulation. Went into effect this summer. Yeah. And whenever you go on your favorite website or non-favorite website and you are presented with a slew of... Yeah of EULA stuff that you're supposed to X quickly. Yeah. That's, it, the effective, that's the effective result for most Americans. Yes. Bizarrely complicated, very European piece of regulation that is supposed to give people more power over how their data is collected and used. The idea broadly was the way that the internet advertising complex has been set up for years is we take all your information and do whatever yeah. with it. If you really have a problem with it, you can opt out. Somewhere. Good luck trying to find out good how luck to opt out. out. And good luck trying to find and that anytime, icon right. that banner. And anytime out. anyone asks any questions, um, everyone would just say, well, the direct mail guys are sketchier. So. Right, right. We're, we're, and, and, Which is true. And people tried to, <laughs> you know, the journal had a long series years yeah. ago trying to. No one cared. And, and not only could they, not, they really couldn't find gross abuses for the most part. And to, it didn't right. seem like human beings actually cared. Right. It seems like that might have shifted. And so GDPR, as a result, is an attempt to say, actually, we're going to reorient this. You're going to have to opt in and say, yes, take my information. Mm-hmm. It seems practically that we're still living in that same place, though. I mean, I don't—it is is very early with GDPR to see what the, what the impact is going to be. I think at the very least, it caused a lot of 
companies to think a lot about how they use data. Companies of all sizes. I'm sure Vox Media had a, a lot of people working on GDPR. Um, you know, we certainly did. Because anytime you collect anyone's data, you have to really think about how you're using that data and whether or not you've given people an affirmative um, way to opt out of that. Um, and whether you're just being upfront with people. Um, but I think the overall impact could be that the use of data will become slightly less um, wild. I mean, there's just, there's been, we've gone to this period where um, a lot of people are just collecting data just to collect data. Um, and they're not really being upfront with people about how it's used. I mean, this is why the ad tech world has grown um, so complicated and so many different players collecting data in so many different ways. Right, but you've got Cambridge Analytica, right, which is the sort of like most gross abuse of this, I think, that's public, right, where Facebook was effectively collecting your data and effectively right. not really asking for permission. We saw it misused. Um, it gets misused in all sorts of milder places. My my totally uneducated hunch is that if you ask people about privacy and the internet, they say, yeah, I don't like it when I go to Zappos and either buy the shoes or don't buy the shoes and the thing floats around after me. Or, yeah, privacy is a big deal. I know Facebook is listening to me talk, and that's why they show, show these ads. Um, and it doesn't go much beyond that. Do you think it's reasonable to ask a regular consumer to sort of think seriously about privacy and what it means to them? No, and I think that's why, you know, look, I don't know if GDPR is going to work, but, like, the, the idea behind it, as I understand it, was that... It would, it would make people not have to do all of that. Like, you had to either be really into privacy or just not care at all. Like, those were basically your two right. options and occasionally complain about retargeting. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how we get to the point where people are not taking on, like, a side job and managing internet privacy settings, um, but at the same time can have a say in how they're data is collected and used. Joanna Stern from the Journal of this great stunt where she printed out all the EULAs <laughs> from, I don't know, 20 top sites or 11 top sites and literally stretched them across the football field. Yeah, that was a great stunt. Uh, we have uh, not spent almost any time talking about Google. They're the other half of the duopoly. Um, it seems to be Facebook's time in the barrel, as Roger Stone would say. Uh, they, they got beat up. YouTube got beat up last year when people discovered... People's a good question mark around that, uh, or a good parenthetical around that. Mm -hmm. uh, they, 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 there were crummy ads on, on YouTube sometimes next to clean content. Um, but they don't seem to be suffering the same problems that Facebook has or did. Any, any idea why they're being treated differently, either by government or the public court of opinion? I mean, I think from a publisher standpoint, um, it's funny because Google has almost a more dominant position because yeah. Google controls the technology that most publishers use in order to make money off of um, their ads. Right, and enormous uh, uh, power in directing traffic to people, which they've had yeah. forever, so long that people have forgotten about it. Right, but I mean, that I, it's... Google has more control over publishers in many ways right. than, and there's actually probably a better case to regulate Google on the basis of, of their advertising technology than there is Facebook. Um, right, Facebook Google, can control your traffic, but they can't really control how you monetize yeah, but it for like, the most part. Regular people don't really right. you know, dig into the Google ad tech stack, which I don't blame them. Um, so I look, Google has been able to... Um, make nice with publishers, which has helped it, you know, whether or not that directly translates into, into sort of coverage of it, you know, that's, that's up for debate. Um, but, uh, you know, look, they just let Facebook take all the, uh, all the punches. Yeah. They, it's weird cause they, they weren't, they didn't seem like a particularly savvy sort of political player for a long time. Um, yeah, no, but it's, then it's Microsoft, well documented that, yeah. Then, then Microsoft, you know, beat up, uh, beat up Google, like, a ton. They tried to get, you know, Google... Uh, they were trying to get them, like... Yes, there was a whole... Broken there was, up? There was a What's whole... It? I don't even remember. Was, they were doing all sorts of... of Microsoft v. Google stories. Yeah. And then, then there was a well-documented series of trips by people from Google to the Obama White House. And Right. Well, they got savvy about Washington. They had, like, yeah, two yeah. people in Washington, and then I assume they just, like, hired all of the, the lobbyists and lawyers that Microsoft had hired in order to fight against the breakup, and so they just, like, 
switch to the other side after that ended. I fear that we've been too gloomy <laughs> for this conversation. What are you most <laughs> excited about? Um, either stuff you cover or stuff that's coming down the pike in the business? Um, look, I'm most excited about coming out of this era of, of flimsy media models that were too dependent on platforms. I think there's a lot of people making, um, making it work in media. As I said, it's, like, it's really hard, um, but it's possible. Like, I know we traffic in some of the doom and gloom, and, and we do love a good autopsy story of a, um, of a media company that made a lot of bad decisions and went under. But there are a lot of media companies, um, you know, some, some smaller but some, like, larger that are making it work. Um, and they're doing it through having, a, you know, diverse business models and strong brands. It's like who's not, your mo- who's the, what's, what media company are you most interested in right now who's not in this room? Who's not, <laughs> not us, not you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm interested in uh, every media, co- all the media companies that are, that are making it work um, when it comes to direct consumer revenue. So everyone from the information to the athletic, um, because I think for too long, media has over-indexed on advertising and through indirect revenue sources. I know there are plenty, uh, there's plenty of arguments for why that's important to do and accessibility and stuff like this. But I think to have like a really healthy media business, you, it is so much more preferable to have a large group of your user base paying for your product. I think that just gets baked into media from now on, that, that, that if you're running a media business, the consumer is expected to pay for at least part of the costs. Yeah. And that's just... That's just the. Starting I think that's. Point. I think that's going to be the starting point for just about all. How much do you pay for businesses. this podcast? Um, I would pay. We we uh, we do early access to ours for uh, our members. Um, I like that one. I don't know. Uh, it's actually it's funny because I've wanted to do a subscriber only podcast, but again, this is a technology problem. Is there's no easy unless you have your own app. As far as I know, there's no easy technology that allows you to have a subscriber-only podcast. It's like Patreon, basically, right? I mean, yeah, but like you need to... And this is also, this is one of my... There has been so much money that has gone into um, the advertising technology world. But then when you start to build a subscription business, you start to realize how comparatively little money has gone into the basics, the basic technology infrastructure for um, subscribers. All of it, it gets like incredibly complicated really quickly. All right, guys. Brian has just given you a new a uh, new business model to pursue. Cool. Start pouring money into uh, well, there's there's a couple. We'll, we'll, just, we'll save it <laughs> for, for for the second podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank, Thank you, you for returning from Serbia and Italy. I think most recently. Yeah, I was just in Sicily. It's great. He did not get tan. No, that's a it's a good way to get cancer. I, I also enjoy Sicily. Thanks to you guys for listening. Before we go, one more time, if you like this podcast. Please tell someone else about it. You know what I normally say? You can. It's better if you tell someone else who's not me. Some of you sent me very nice notes recently. I like getting those too. I still like it more if you tell someone else, but you can send me a note personally. You can DM me. I'm happy for all praise. I'm thirsty. Thank you to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Rico Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show and to my producers, Goldhar Arthur and Eric Johnson who worked especially hard for me last couple weeks. Thank you, guys. Thanks to you. Again, this is Recode Media. We will see you next week. Hey there, podcast listeners. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we co-host a podcast called Displaced, all about the refugee crisis. Check out this week's episode with Jeff Mulligan, who talked with us about something he calls collective intelligence, or really how machines and humans can collaborate to solve problems like dealing with epidemics, predicting war and conflict, and collecting data during natural disasters. Displaced is a collaboration between the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work, and Vox Media. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I'm Arthur Brooks, host of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you like this show, I know you'll enjoy listening to my new podcast. In it, I explore the art of disagreement. My guests and I provide some practical advice for navigating disagreements with friends and family, persuading and inspiring others through storytelling, and countering social media's amplifying effect on the culture of outrage. 
listen and subscribe to The Arthur Brooks Show on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player of your choice. 